Hey guys, welcome to episode 67 of True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And this is our first episode of the decade, 2020. It is. I'm excited. It is exciting. But before we bring you this episode, we just want to thank everyone for the reviews they left on the various podcast platforms that there are. It's always fun when you find like a new platform with reviews and you get to just read them all. That's true. That's what we were doing over break. And if you haven't yet, you could leave us a review and let us know what you think. It's always really helpful to get those reviews. We also just released another two episodes on Patreon for our donors. The first episode took place during the London riots of 2011, when a night of partying for three hotel employees goes terribly wrong. And it actually ends up inspiring the writers of American Horror Story, one of my favorite shows. This second episode is about the Red Lake Senior High School shooting. That tackles both the school shooting and the troubles that plague the Native American populations of the United States. So that one's a little bit of a heavy hitter. Yeah, it is. Uh, Kay was a little emotional on that one, but it really was good, though. I do get it. It's a little embarrassing, but it is what it is, I guess. So if you're looking for 17 extra episodes of TCC, become a Patreon today, and you can join at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And before we get into today's episode, I want to first do the most important thing we're going to do. Recognize the main source of information for this episode. And I always put the sources that I use in the show notes. And of course, I use other sources, but this book was what I used mainly to get most of the information. It's also good to fact check most of my sources next to books that are critically acclaimed because you just want to make sure you're always giving the right information. Of course. So this is a book written by Phil and Sandy Hammond, a couple which reveals the survivor's inside story of the mass murders that shocked the heartlands. So that intro makes it totally clear that this case we're covering today, it's a tragic one. A group of teenagers are massacred in a nature reserve in 1973. Five people are attacked, four are murdered, and one is raped. The crime scene was so gruesome and wide that eight law enforcement agencies would need to get involved. They would discover that the events that took place that night were worse than they could have ever imagined. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The draft for the Vietnam War had just ended the year before. Coming of age with the threat of military service looming in your future had caused mixed emotions among the youth in America. And now it was over. Well, the draft. And the students in high school in 1973, for the first time in four years, didn't have to fear the lottery or charm school in Vietnam, but look forward rather to the future. Those in high school at the time, on the verge of turning 18, recall an electricity in the air. The war wasn't over, but the battle for their lives had certainly ended. It was a piece of that carefree, adolescent fun that the five teenagers from Sioux Falls area were chasing on November 17, 1973. The four boys attended schools within the Sioux Falls School District. They were 17-year-old Roger Isom, 15-year-old Michael Hadrith, 13-year-old Sandra Chesky, 
and 18-year-old Stuart Bade, as well as his 14-year-old brother Dana. They were headed to the Gitche Manitou Nature Reserve to hang out, play music, and enjoy the fall night. The 91-acre Gitche Manitou Nature Preserve is located just southeast of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and it was in the northwestern corner of Iowa. Most of the park actually is in Iowa versus South Dakota, but a lot of the teenagers that went there through the opening in Sioux Falls had no idea that it was really in another state. So this preserve, which translates as great spirit or great force of nature, is known mostly for its ancient Native American burial grounds. Oh, sweet. I I always find that so interesting. I love Native American things. It's cool. It is really interesting, and it's also the subplot of most horror movies in the 1980s. (laughs) You're right about that, actually. (laughs) Another popular attraction is the smooth pink-colored bedrock, which is actually Precambrian, and it's about 1.6 billion years old. Also really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big rock collector place. But that is not what the local teens thought too much about, obviously. Um, It was a place that was used to go party in. No, that makes me feel like a loser because I actually like the fact that it's like super old rock and Indian burial grounds, but these people are going to party. So am I not cool? Well, no, John, you're not, but it's okay, me either. Okay. <laughs> but I think that that is really interesting, and it kind of, like, sets the scene that this is where the teenagers go, they hang out, they think it's super isolated, but in fact, the sheriff, the sheriff department that kind of controls this area, the Lyon County Sheriff Department, they know the teenagers go there to, like, hang out. So every weekend, they have to go up there and, like, chase the kids out, basically. Yeah. I feel like there's a place like that everywhere in the United States. And oh, probably yeah. probably the world, really. I mean, that's just what people, like, kids do. They find an isolated place and they go party. Yes, exactly. So Mike, Roger, Stuart, they were all really close friends. And although the boys had different ages, their interests and general happy disposition really drew them all to each other. They were all really well-liked by students of the high school and middle school most of whom considered the three boys their best friends. They had been out to the nature reserve before, to listen to music and sit by the fire. Stuart had his van to use, one that he had bought from saving up money at his part-time job at the UPS store. That's adorable. Everyone knew Stuart to give everybody a ride. So a lot of kids didn't have cars because they didn't have part-time jobs, and Stuart had no problem giving people's rides back and forth. That's cool. That's really nice. Yeah. Usually the kid with the car holds all the power. Of course. And he was nice about it. True. So Stuart always really brings his little brother along. So that's why Dana's going to come along. And why Dana came along too was Stuart was really good friends with Mike, who was 15 years old. And he's only a year older than Dana. So the three boys were always really close. And then Roger was really good friends with Stu. So that's how they all kind of came together. Those four boys. So on Saturday, November 17th, 1973, Mike Hadrith told his family that he was planning on hanging out with his friends and a few others at the nature reserve. Mike idolized his older brother and enjoyed the fact that they were both athletic and they played sports together. He was also really good to his younger sister, whom he had just taken trick-or-treating that Halloween. When his mother said it was fine that he went out to the reserve, he gave her a big kiss goodbye and ran to wait for Stuart to pull up. In his blue van. Now, Roger Isom had recently started dating a girl who lived in another town. Her name was Sandra Chesky. Sandra had long, straight hair, 
and chestnut brown eyes. She was beautiful. Her and Roger had met recently at a drive-in movie theater. They spoke on the phone all the time, and they actually had went on a few dates. Roger was just beginning to get to know Sandra, as she was slowly beginning to open up to him. Now, Sandra didn't really open up to a lot of people because she actually had a pretty difficult life. She was the youngest of four children, shared by her mother and father, and she was the only girl. Born in the backseat of a car on the way to the hospital, Sandra had always been really special to her mother. The girl was raised Christian, but she was taught to respect the beliefs of her mother's ancestors, the Lakota tribe of Native Americans. That's cool. I always think it's really interesting when you have like more than one culture kind of like in the family dynamic, but they both can coexist. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is nice. And she, although considering herself Christian, respected the idea of the circle of life and the great powers that keep the universe balanced. So she was really open-minded. But Sandra's parents got divorced when she was two years old, and that was the end of her short fairy tale life. Sandra's mother's new boyfriend had a lot of difficulty accepting all of her children. And because of this, Sandra and the youngest of her three brothers were sent to live with a foster family. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, that I think that's like the most harshest thing that could ever happen is that your family split and not because of like um, a death or something traumatic or crazy just because, well, I can't handle all these kids. I have to give two away. Yeah, well, I think that when you do date someone who has children, you have to accept the fact that they have children. Yeah, I mean, that should be the one and only thing that matters when you're first starting to get to know someone. Yeah, so it's really sad that the two youngest children were sent to foster homes. And Sandra was sent to two separate families. The first was abusive, and the second was neglectful. And she would talk to her mother on the phone time and time again. And she would beg her mother, can I come home? Can I come home? And eventually her mother is going to agree to request that her two children come back. But her other brother is going to have a little bit of a better experience with his foster family because he went to a family and the father was a police officer. So he was really helpful to the boy and helped him out for the rest of his life. But she just had a really terrible experience. Yeah, I always feel like those kind of situations can go either way like that you know it's sad i know but she was happy that they were all back together again but this didn't last the boyfriend won out again sandra and now two of her brothers were sent to a native american boarding school in south dakota now at the time they were living in minnesota so they were actually being sent out of state and the reason they qualified to go into this boarding school is because of her mother's 100 percent ancestry but At the boarding school, things were really hard for the three children because they were not full Native American. They were only half. So they were often teased and criticized for being too white for the boarding school. Like the kids made fun of them all the time. Right. Another thing about the boarding school was that they did not spare the rod. They used it all the time. And there was a lot of corporal punishment that happened with the children. So Sandra's going to spend most of her seventh grade year trying to just behave so she didn't get beat yeah well once again that's most boarding schools or like privatized kind of schooling i guess during that time right yeah in the 1970s i would say so yeah 
But when she returned home for the summer, she was given bittersweet news. She was not going to be returning to the boarding school. So that's really good. Yeah. But the bad news is her whole entire family was moving from Minnesota to South Dakota. And that means that she has to leave all of her friends behind. And in middle school, that's one of the worst things that can happen to you. Oh, yeah. But it is there that she meets Roger Isom. The summer she moves to South Dakota, she went with her brother and some of her new friends to the drive-in. And she met Roger. And yes, Sandra is 13 years old and Roger is 17 years old. But she looks a lot older than 13 years old. She looks like she could be like 16. So when she meets Roger, she doesn't tell him her real age. So it's not that he thought he was dating a 13-year-old. He had no idea how old she was. She said she was in high school. Seems like some betrayal right there. Yeah. Well, I think that she thought he was really cute and nice. So she just wanted to be with him. I guess so. It's an innocent thing. Yeah. Could it get him in trouble? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it could. (laughs) So the couple actually only really went on a few dates. And they spent their first date in the company of Stu, actually, because, again, Stu has the van. Ah, so that's how they're getting places. (laughs) Yes, because they actually live 12 miles apart. So it's not something they can casually do to meet up. So Stu went to go pick her up. Then they went to the movie theater and they watched Night of the Living Dead. And Sandra remembers that as being a great time. She writes about it. I'm sure it was. Also classic movie. Can't go wrong. No, you can't. And then scary movies are perfect for first dates because then you can like hold each other's hand. Yeah. We went to go see Paranormal Activity 3. We did classic movie yeah i don't know i don't know if that's classic but it's my favorite paranormal activity it is really good though so it seemed like things were really working out between sandra and roger and that's why he wanted to invite her to come out to the nature reserve with him and his friends so he had called her and asked her if she'd want to come and she agreed so around 8 30 that night november 17th sandra went out to the van that was waiting for her in the driveway When Roger initially asked her to come out to the reserve that night, she told him that her brother would have to come along because he was home alone and she didn't really want to leave him alone. Sandra shared a special bond with him as they both endured a lot of struggles together. The boarding school, going to the foster families. So they were usually attached at the hip. Yeah, it also makes sense because both of them are the youngest children of the family. Yeah, usually that's how it works. The kids that are close in age are the closest. Yeah. But just as they were getting into the van with Roger Isom, Sandra's brother's friend pulled up into the driveway and said there was another party. And at that party was a girl that he liked. So Sandra's brother asked her if it was okay if he went to the party. And she told him to just go ahead and go. But now Sandra is in a van with four boys. And does she really know them 100%? No. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird position for a 13-year-old girl to be in, especially going to an isolated nature reserve. I wouldn't feel comfortable if it was me. No, and I'm sure her stomach was a little unnerved, but sometimes when you're young and in love, you do kind of silly things. You step out of your comfort zone (laughs) on what you think is comfortable. You know what I mean? So at around 9 p.m. that night, the teenagers arrived at their location. The night had gotten cold, so they layered up while they unpacked the van with all of their supplies. Sandra, being new to the area, had never been to this location before. At night, it was scary for a 13-year-old girl. She asked Roger if anyone else was there, and he assured her that the five of them were alone, 
showing her that there wasn't another car in sight. The group walked towards the campsites that were separated by stones. As they searched for the perfect spot, the group walked towards the campsites that were separated by stones. And as they searched for the perfect spot, Roger and Sandra trailed behind, holding hands. That was until Stu, who stopped at a fire pit, called for Roger to meet up with him. When Roger got there, he noticed what Stu was trying to show him. It appeared that in the fire pit, there were coals, and they were still hot. Okay. So it looks like someone had just recently been there. So usually a lot of teenagers went there, or people that were hunting, so they didn't really want to make anyone upset or like ruffle any feathers, so they decided to walk to a campsite that was a lot further away, just so like if those people came back, they both, both groups had privacy. Okay. Smart move. I would say so, for like teenagers. Yeah. Usually teenagers don't care. Usually they just do what's the easiest. Yeah. (laughs) So the group is walking further away from their vehicle and closer to the edge of the forest, nearby a river. Once they choose their location, they start a fire with some sticks that they found and paper that they had brought along. Sandra and Roger cuddled up together as Stu and Dana messed with the guitar and Mike listened along. The brothers Stu and Dana were really adorable together. Dana was only in eighth grade. He was eager to please his older brother, who was nice enough to always include him in the things that he did with his friends. The brothers planned on starting a band together. Dana would play bass, and Stu would play guitar. Stu worked part-time at the local UPS store, like we said, but he still always had time to teach his brother chords and build up his confidence. It's a nice brother. Ed is a really nice brother. I don't know if I would do that. Yes, I'm sure you would if you had a brother. John's an only (laughs) child, guys, so. I don't like to share. No, he doesn't. (laughs) It has often been said that when a question was directed at the boys, that Dana would, like, always defer to his brother. So Stu most of the time talked for both him and Dana. That's cute. That is really cute. So about an hour into the group sitting by the fire, something caught both Dana and Roger's attention. Both of the boys turned at the same time. And Dana said, did you guys hear that? Roger asked Stu to stop playing the guitar so they could all listen for the sound again. Very quickly, the group got nervous, revealing the young kids that they really were. As they intently listened to the sounds in the nearby woods, the sounds of the winds were interrupted by the snapping of twigs. Again, the sound was almost rhythmic. It would be a snap a pause, and then a snapping sound again. It sounded human, like someone walking, not at all like the scurrying of an animal. The kids tried to reassure each other by stating maybe it was a bear, but they all knew there were no bears in the area. The reassurance didn't work, and the teenagers, they were on high alert. The night had officially taken a sharp turn. You know it's bad when you have to convince each other that it's a bear. You know yeah, what I mean? Because <laughs> a bear is terrifying. Yeah, that show, remember that movie Backwoods with the bear attack? Terrible. That one Horrible. and also um, The Revenant as well. That crazy bear attack. Yeah. And that, oh my God. If I ever saw a bear, even if it was like, even if it didn't even see me, I'd be running yeah. as fast as I could like the other way. I don't like, yeah, I don't like bears or wild animals. I'm scared of that crap. Well, there's no bear in this area. So... It seems like there was someone watching them from the woods. 
and this is what always deters me from going camping with you. I I, right I do now. like camping, and John never wants to this go. This right now. I'll, Eight years. I have not convinced him to go camping. I'll go glamping if you want. <laughs> like maybe like in a motorhome. This is supposed to be the opposite, just so you know. I, I know. It's actually kind of weird. Yeah. But it's true, though. Like, you know. I'll glamp with you, though. That's really nice of you. You're welcome. Well, this so far (laughs) now is the starting of, like, every horror movie ever. We have an ancient Indian burial ground and someone stalking teenagers in the woods. Yep. (sighs) So, eventually the sounds stop and the group tried to resume their normal activity. Someone took out a joint and they started passing it around to finally relax. Hey, that's the best way to relax is back in the 70s. Hell yeah. I would say yes. So soon after, Dana and Stu continued singing and playing the guitar as the others listened on. But they ran into another problem. The fire was dying. So being ever helpful, the two brothers chose to get up and get more firewood. As Mike, Roger, and Sandra stayed behind, the three hung back and talked. Soon, though, they heard the same sound again from the woods in the same place. But this time, all three of them had heard the sound and immediately sat up, alert. Again, the sounds came, snapping, pause, then snapping again. But the sounds seemed to be moving faster this time, and it was almost like they were going away and then doubling back, like someone was pacing. That's even scarier. I, ha- I do not like where this is going at all. The heart rate of the teenagers increased, as they anticipated someone or something coming out of the tree line. Stu, Dana, where are you guys? Mike called out. A bit shaky, but definitely loud. We're over here. Be back in a minute, Stu yelled, again answering for him and his brother. But Stu had yelled back to Mike from the opposite direction of where the noise were coming from. So at first they thought that maybe it could be the brothers, like just looking for wood pacing back and forth. But they were behind them, the brothers. The noise was coming from in front of them. So they didn't know what it was, but it was definitely getting closer. The three teenagers looked at each other, and Mike said to the young couple, it's like they want us to hear them. And the tension was broken by the return of Stu and Dana, with surprisingly no wood for the fire. (laughs) Roger told the boys what they experienced while they were gone. Something is going on here. Someone's out there, Roger told them. And the boys suggested that they all go searching for more firewood together so no one's alone and they could build the fire higher and they could see what was going on. As they're looking for wood, Roger and Sandra caught something in the woods. They saw two large figures running. Roger asked Stu if he saw that, and Stu responded that he hadn't. The couple did not see the figures again, And the sound stopped, so they just kept looking for wood. Stu and Mike walked over to them and started looking in the area near Roger and Sandra. The fire was getting very low, and at this point, the four teens were almost in complete darkness. The movement was noticed again, and this time, Roger yelled out to whoever was out there, Who are you? What do you want? But there was no response. And then suddenly, and very quietly, two figures emerged on the rock ledge above them, about 20 yards away. Behind them, there seemed to be a third shadow, 
lingering, almost pacing behind them. Oh, no. This is not happening. This is just pulled straight from, like, Everyone's the worst nightmare. Night- nightmare and movie. I don't like it. I hate it. And I feel terrible for these kids right now. Yeah, it's really sad. Completely. Like, this is crazy. Yeah, because you have to think, what would you do if you were a teenager? I mean, and it's always good. Like, in retrospect, it's easy to say, oh, just get out of there. Just get out of there. But when you're in the situation and you're a teenager trying to, like, prove yourself, it's not always easy to just get out of there so quickly. No. no. And also, you got to, like, think, too. I mean, they're all friends. And if you're able to leave, let's say, maybe the next friend up is not. And that would make them hesitant to just book it out of there. You know, oh, where's so-and-so, you know, and and that's kind of how it like it kind of perpetuates itself. It just makes it worse. Well, the men on the ledge said nothing, but all three of them were holding shotguns. The man in the forefront, a thin man with a Russian trooper hat on, aimed his gun directly at Roger. And the silent tension was broken by two deafening shots. Roger flinched with the first shot, and was blown backwards by the second. Just as Sandra's knees were buckling from shock and fear, she felt something grab her waist. It was Mike. He had grabbed her and positioned them both safely behind a large tree. From this position, the shotgun couldn't get them. Sandra wanted to go to Roger, but she was terrified. 15-year-old Mike and 13-year-old Sandra desperately clung to each other. It was the only way that they could keep from screaming. Then they heard it again, another two shots. And the next thing they heard was Dana. He had heard the gunshots and was coming back to check on his brother. Stu, Dana called, what happened? I've been shot, Stu yelled back. They shot me. And Stu sounded like he was in a lot of pain. They wanted to go to Stu too, but they were too scared to move. As Stu lay yards away, crying out in pain, Sandra whispered, What's going on? I don't know, Mike answered. And as Stu began yelling out, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. Mike and Sandra heard the men get down from the ledge and begin approaching them. It sounded like one of the men was going to retrieve Dana. The remaining two men yelled at the teens. We're the police. Come out with your hands up. And before they moved, Mike whispered to Sandra, Don't run. These cops have already shot at us. Then the demand came again. We're the police. Come out with your hands up. Mike and Sandra slowly stepped out from behind the tree. And Mike yelled out, There's two of us. Don't shoot. Again, the man in front raised his gun, pointed it at Mike, and he said to the boy, Who do you think you are shooting at us? But before Mike could even respond, the man pulled the trigger again for the fifth time. The close range of the shot knocked Mike off of his feet. The sound of the gun made Sandra drop to the ground as well. She was trembling. She saw that Mike had been shot in the shoulder, and the wound was so large it spread down to his bicep. Although the wound was extensive, Mike did not cry out in pain and she tried to put pressure on it so the bleeding would stop. The men began approaching the teens. One of the men she saw walk by Roger. They kicked him, and he gave no response. The other man, the shooter, came towards Mike and Sandra. They had closed their eyes. 
they were pretending to be dead. The man kicked both of them, hard. And when they doubled to the side in pain, he yelled back to the other guy, these two were just faking it. The third man, a smaller, chubbier guy, who was very different than the other two tall, thinner men, pointed his gun at Sandra and Mike and told them to get up and put their arms in the air and don't try anything. They both did as they were told. And this, I can only imagine, had to have been excruciating for Mike, who had just taken a buckshot to the shoulder. Soon, they were approached by a third man. He had his gun pointed at Dana, and he was instructing the 14-year-old boy to stand with Sandra and Mike. His hands were also raised above his head. So the three men stood just far enough away from the teens that they could not be heard. They spoke for a while, and then one of the thin men, the one that had acne scars on his face, not the shooter, he left, and the shorter man spoke first. Let's take them this way, boss. So this was the first time the teens heard them refer to themselves, and the shooter is the one he called boss. He had taken shots at Rogers, Stu, and Mike. Now, for the rest of the podcast, we're going to call him the boss, but just know that it hurts my heart to do that because there's really only one boss. That's, um, Come hold on, John. hold on, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Yes, the love of my life, besides which, John. Which I don't like, though. I know, but <laughs> it's the one thing that I'll forgive you for. So the boss walked towards them and said, this is a drug raid. No sudden movements and do what you're told. He made a motion with his gun that told them that he wanted them to turn around, and they complied. Now, more vulnerable than ever, the teens waited for instructions or to be shot. But he didn't shoot them. He told them to walk forward and follow the path they were on. And this raised so many questions. If these men were the police, then why were they leading them further into the woods? What were they going to do to them? Was this really all for one joint? They didn't even have alcohol. Following the path was difficult. It was pitch black outside, and it was hard to see in front of them or the ground below them. These children were terrified, but still they were not comprehending how bad things were going to get. They still thought there was a possibility that these men were going to just bring them to the sheriff's station. Finally, Mike spoke. Sir, can we put our hands down? The man told them that they could, and the relief Mike felt in bringing his arm down was immediate. He walked up to Sandra, who was in front of him, and asked her if she could help him walk. So she slowed down and allowed Mike to lean on her as she held him up by his waist. They were now walking together in the darkness towards Dana, who was in front of everyone. At one point, they were told to stop walking. Mike, exhausted, laid down. And Dana told him to try and rest up while they were there. And Sandra tried to calm him down by stroking his hair. And Mike told him that he couldn't feel his arm anymore. And he asked Sandra if she could lift his arm off the ground and put it on his chest. And she did so without hesitation. They had been instructed to stop at a cliff. Below was the river that ran through the reserve. They sat, waiting for the men to give them further instructions. A thick fog began to creep up the steep walls of the cliff, making things all the more difficult to see. The boss told them to get up and continue walking. 
Mike asked him twice if the ambulance would be coming for him, but the man never responded to him. When he did speak again, he asked the teenagers what their names were, and they all answered him. This is when the misunderstanding began that Dana was a female. It's really dark outside. It was hard for them to see, and they never got really close to the teenagers. And Dana had long hair, and when they asked him his name, he said Dana, which could be both a male and female's name. So this is when the misunderstanding began. And if you think about it, if they misinterpreted Dana as being a girl, it's interesting that they shot the boys and not the girls. No, you're right. So Sandra finally mustered up the courage to speak as well. She didn't know it, but she was only talking to the boss. The other man had left. He was doubling back to the scene of the shooting to check on the status of Roger and Stu. She asked, where are we going? Where is Roger? Will I be able to see these guys after you take us in? Will they ride up with me when we go to jail? Will Roger ride up in front if he's hurt? And then a response came. Absolutely not. And this one, he said, pointing his gun at Mike, will be in the prison hospital. And he'll think it's heaven compared to where you two are going. Referring to her and Dana. As they continued walking, they came upon two bright beams of light poking out of the woods. The boss yelled, Over here, hatchet face. And it was strange that the two men didn't have police radios, and they were talking under assumed names, but they assumed most likely it was because the men were undercover. So finally they reached the source of the light, and it was there the other thin man with the acne scars was waiting. So remember, he had left the guy with the acne scars. Right. So most likely he went to go get the pickup truck and meet them at this location. So he's called Hatchet Face and then the other guy's called The Boss. This is what the teens are listening to. Hatchet Face asked about JR, presumably the shorter man, and The Boss told him he was getting the other boys. Mike asked again if an ambulance was coming and The Boss told him that first they needed to know who they were, so they needed their IDs. The only person who had anything on, like any form of identification on them was Dana. When Dana was frisked, his wallet was taken out, and his ID was checked by the glow of the headlight. And the men looked pissed. Wait, how many girls are there? The boss asked. And Mike and Dana looked at Sandra and said, Only one, her. And this seemed to anger the men a lot. The three were told to sit in a circle facing each other in the direct path of the truck's headlights. Sandra whispered to them that she had overheard them talking earlier, and they said they were going to tie them up and put them in the back of the pickup truck. The boys nodded, and they sat in silence. Sandra was taken away from the boys and brought to the side of the pickup truck by the boss. He told her that he didn't have handcuffs, but he had wire, and he was going to tie her hands behind her back with it. He said if she moved a lot, the wire would cut her up badly, so she tried to stay still. After he was done tying her up, he told her to get in the cab of the truck. But she looked up at him and said, I can't. Realizing he made a mistake by tying her hands before she got into the truck, the boss got flustered. Oh, right, right, he said, and he lifted her into the cab. 
Sandra, wanting to take advantage of this breaking character, asked him if he could please just untie the wire, and to her surprise, he agreed. He leaned in close to her and whispered that he was trying to get her out of here before the sheriff got there. She asked about Roger, and the man told her that he was okay. He was only shot with a tranquilizer gun. But you can't try anything, he yelled, and he slammed the truck door. While Sandra and the boss were by the truck, J.R. had returned from his journey back to the campsite. He had with him a very badly wounded Stu. Dana was overwhelmed with relief in seeing his brother again. The boss got into the truck with Sandra, and they began to drive away. Sandra did not want to leave the boys. It calmed her nerves to know that she was with them, and she was taking care of Mike. It distracted her from the confusion and terror that she felt. But now she was on her own, like she had been so many times before. But she couldn't help it. She looked back once more at the boys, and that was when she saw Stu. He had joined them recently, and she was so happy to see him, and it gave her even more hope that Roger really was going to be okay. The boys were all instructed to start walking back in the direction they came. It was a long and painful walk. Dana had to witness his brother, Stu, and his best friend Mike as they struggled forward with all of their injuries. The entire time J.R. and Hatchetface had their guns pointed at them, these two men had a really different demeanor than the boss, and they knew that they were a little bit more crazy. There was no way they could talk to them like they did the boss. Eventually, they made it back to the campsite where they originally started their fire. They even saw Stu's guitar placed carefully against a tree. The fog had completely taken over the campgrounds. It was definitely an eerie atmosphere at the ancient Indian burial grounds reserve. Hatchetface went to get the van and to drive it back where they stood. Stu gave him the keys when he asked. The boys were left alone with J.R., who seemed to be the most unpredictable of the group. His shotgun was pointed directly at them. When Hatchetface returned driving the van, they had a quick conversation. They agreed that because Dana was the only boy that wasn't wounded, they needed to shoot him so he wouldn't give them trouble. So Hatchetface rested his gun on his shoulder and fired point-blank at the 14-year-old boy, knocking him to the ground. His protective older brother could only watch as Dana fell to the ground. As Stu turned back to look at the men, J.R. shot him, throwing him backwards as well. The two brothers now lied together. Mike knew what was coming next. So he stared bravely at the men who would be his murderers, making sure that they would remember his face. J.R. shot him too, and he fell to the ground as well. But J.R. wasn't done. He fired several more shots into the boys, completely disfiguring them. The haze of gunpowder joined the fog that surrounded them, making it even harder to see. The men got into the van and drove away. Their plan was to ditch the car and meet at their rendezvous point with the boss, an old abandoned house. At that moment, the boss was supposed to be getting rid of the girl. In the pickup truck, the boss was driving around aimlessly with Sandra, 
He told her that he was trying to find a lake, but he was getting lost. And because of this, he ran out of gas. So he took her to a white two-story farmhouse and he drove behind the barn. He had a key that unlocked the gas canister that was supposed to be used for the farm equipment. Sandra knew what this was because her grandparents had a farm as well. So when he got back in, he explained that it was okay. The family allowed him to use the gas when he needed to. So now it's seeming more to her like, this guy's not a police officer. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much like everything that we've seen so far. I mean, I know they're young, but I mean, they were using the wrong, you know, you know, shotguns aren't just standard issue that they just hold on them. You know what I mean? No handcuffs, no radio. I know, but a 13 year old's not going to know that. I know. So the man then told her again that he was trying to get her out of trouble. He gave her a can of Coke to drink and told her that there's acids in the Coke that help get rid of the smell of grass. Sandra didn't believe him, but she did as she was told. She tried to keep the man talking. He seemed to be softening up while away from the other men. So she finally got it out of him that he had thought Dana was a girl, but was really just a hippie. Sandra got really defensive about this because in the 1970s, it was calling someone a hippie was like an insult. So she said, no, Dana's not a hippie. He's a sweet boy and he washes his hair every chance that he gets. He's so (laughs) cute. Yeah. So they kept driving around with no direction until finally the boss said that he remembered that he was supposed to meet the guys back in an old abandoned house to do another drug raid. He said the house was used to store drugs. So he was wandering around aimlessly with this girl. His mission was that he was supposed to kill her, but he wasn't killing her. And then he brings her back to the rendezvous point when at this point she's supposed to be dead. So he really messed up yeah, their plans here. Yeah, this is not going to go well. So finally they pull into a long driveway and they reach the abandoned house where they saw the pickup truck and the two men. And Sandra was excited because she thought she was going to see the boys, but they weren't there. When J.R. and Hatchetface saw the girl, they were enraged. Sandra, through the open window, asked where the boys were and if they were okay. J.R. told her that they tried to get away and said nothing more. As Hatchetface and the boss were trying to come up with a plan, J.R. told them to leave him alone and that he wanted to stay with the girl and make sure she didn't go anywhere. The men walked behind the abandoned house, leaving Sandra at the mercy of J.R. He climbed into the pickup truck and began touching her. He ordered her to take off her clothes, and when she wasn't doing it fast enough, he ripped them from her. Sandra remembered the horrible smell of his breath and his hands pulling her hair. As he raped her, she tried to think about Roger and how much she loved him. She was putting herself at the movies with him or in the van with him, anywhere but where she was now. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, J.R. climbed off of her, and Sandra, as quickly as she could, put her clothes back on and was running her fingers through her hair, trying to unknot the mess that he had made. She had felt so violated. At this point, the truck door was open, and she was thankful for the fresh air that was coming in. She just wanted to get out of there at this point. Eventually, the two men came back. They had a plan. The boss, this time for real, 
was going to get rid of the girl, and Hatchetface was going to drive JR home in the car that they had stashed at the abandoned house, which was why it was their rendezvous point. Why was it imperative that JR get home? Well, that would be because his home was the county jail. He was on a work release program. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Yeah. At 6.30 a.m., he checked out of the jail to work for a tow truck company who employed him. He finished work at 3 p.m., but it was now 2.30 a.m. And still, he wasn't back at jail. But the scary thing was, no one was looking for him. That's, I think, the worst part. Yeah. (laughs) Is that no one's looking for this guy. Yeah, after this, the sheriff's department that was holding him it wasn't the same sheriff's department that was doing the investigation they're going to come out of under a lot of fire for this one and they have to completely like revamp their work program which actually gets like eliminated for a short period of time my god yeah maybe that was a good idea like to shut it down yeah i would say that (laughs) so after hatchet face dropped off jr he threw the shotguns that they used off of a nearby bridge and into a river getting rid of evidence the shotguns were stolen anyway, so they weren't registered for the two men, and he'd gotten rid of the evidence. As Sandra and the boss drove away, they were silent in the pickup truck for a really long time, until Sandra finally broke the silence. I was a virgin, you know. The boss looked at her. No, you weren't. She wasn't too scared anymore, and she looked directly at him and told him that she was only 13 years old. She didn't know it then, but her telling him that would dramatically change the events of the rest of the night. She asked him if he was going to take her home. He told her that he was, but if that she told anyone what happened, he would get practically no time in jail because he was a cop. And when he got out, he would make her pay. He then asked for her phone number. And not wanting to change his mood or his mind, She gave him her phone number, but now he knew where she was going to live, like if he dropped her off at home, and he knew the phone number. So she was scared. I feel like you would give up that, those details just to go home. Just to get out of there? Yeah. Yeah. So they continued to drive. Every once in a while, he would stop and ask her which way to go. Eventually, the boss turned down her street. She almost began to cry when she saw her house. He stopped next to her mailbox and let her out of his truck. Sandra ran inside, opened the front door, locked it behind her, and immediately fell against it and began to sob. She looked at the clock and saw that it was 5 a.m. Can you imagine the relief that she felt being safe inside of her house? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Oh, God. She didn't want to wake her mother, so she went into her middle brother's bedroom, Bob, and she told him the whole story. He wanted her to call the police, but she was still scared that those guys were the police. So Bob told her to get some sleep, think things through, and that they would talk about it again in the morning. She agreed and went into her room. She sat upright in her bed, clutching her pillow, until exhaustion finally overtook her. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you would be able to sleep and forget about everything that just happened to you, Um, you know, a couple hours ago, you know, you know, yeah. you were attacked. A bit traumatic. You know, you had friends, boyfriend, people killed right in front of you. It, 
you, how do you go to sleep like that? So, well, I don't think she fully knows or understands what took place. And I kind of get that because she told her brother what happened. If she truly knew the scale of what just happened to her and her friends, I think her brother would have sprung into action a little bit more. Yeah. She doesn't even know that the boys are dead. Yeah, I don't think... Um, well, I think that she probably has an idea, but I think that she's... I don't know. I think that you would know, but I don't think it's set in, yeah. is what I'm saying. It Like, that news just hasn't set in yet. Right. Well, a few hours later, a married couple was test driving a car through the Gitche Manitou Nature Reserve when they noticed something just beyond the road. Not knowing what it was, they stopped, and to their horror, they realized that it was the body of three young teenage boys. They immediately called 911. Jurisdiction of the reserve fell upon the Lyon County Sheriff Department, a department that was made up of just a handful of people. The sheriff, Craig Vinson, immediately responded to the call, along with Leroy Grias, who was described as being a warm and compassionate deputy to have. Once Vinson realized that this was not a prank from the teenagers that so often went up to drink at the Nature Reserve, he conceded and reached out to other jurisdictions for help. He knew that he didn't have the resources to handle this case alone. Which is really big because sometimes law enforcement agencies want to kind of tackle things by themselves to kind of get all the glory. But Vincent was just really concerned about getting this crime solved. Right. And I think that that's it, it's noble. And I think that it should be recognized that he did do that, you know, giving it to like the bigger fish. Because like oh, yeah. you just said, if you don't have the police force to handle an investigation like this, you probably should pass it off. You know what I mean? You just have to do right. that sometimes. A hundred percent. And the two men actually felt a little bit guilty about what had went down because every weekend they went up to the nature reserve to kind of like chase the teenagers away. And there was two reasons why they didn't go that weekend because first, um, Grice and Vincent were in two separate cars. They were kind of like staking out a house. Then they were going to drive up to the reserve and just check it out. But the fog was really bad. Remember, like we said, the fog kept coming up. Yep. The fog was actually so bad and the visibility was so low that the officers almost got into head-on collisions trying to get up to the nature reserve. So they said, okay, it's safer just to not go up there. Yeah. And then Isn't that crazy? This is kind of what transpires. Yeah. Yes. So they were very serious about getting this solved because they, they felt a certain sense of responsibility here. So his first call was to the Sioux Falls Police Department. But before Vincent could even get on the phone with him, Grice was calling out to him. Vincent rushed to his deputy and immediately saw what the man was calling him over for. There was another body of a teenage boy. It looked like Vincent would need to make a few more phone calls. So that was the body of Roger that he found. Because remember, he had gotten shot down initially right away by the rock ledge. Right. Vincent and his deputies were joined by two seasoned detectives from South Dakota and crime scene technicians. Because of the vast crime scene, evidence would need to be collected systematically and in sections. The first issue to tackle was that of location. Vincent needed to find out where this murder took place within the reserve. And this is because the reserve lies within both Iowa and South Dakota. 
For two reasons, it was of vital importance to find out which state this crime occurred in. First, if a suspect or suspects in the murders were found, they would need to determine in which state they would need to file charges in. Secondly, there was a huge difference in the murders taking place in Iowa or South Dakota. South Dakota has the death penalty. And just eight years before this, Iowa abolished the death penalty. Interesting. Very interesting. Vincent called a land surveyor to come in and check the state lines. It was determined that the bodies were discovered a few yards into the Iowa state line. Oh, man. I know. The crime scene photographer and the coroner then began their analysis of the scene. They took copious notes and pictures. All that were there that day said they would never forget the horror of that scene. The young boys were horribly disfigured by the close-range shotgun blasts of, like, number four buckshots. Yeah, it's pretty insane. A fact about um, buckshot, well, that particular buckshot, um, it's primarily used for, like, home defense. So, like, a majority of people who use shotguns, um, you know, who use them for self-defense, they always are loaded with number four buckshot. And that's because the amount of pellets within each cartridge and also, like, how wide they are. So, like, I I believe, I could be wrong, but I'm almost 100% sure, number four buckshot, they're around anywhere from 21 to, like, 24 point centimeters big. So, like, it's probably the size of, like, a a little bit bigger than, like, a pea. So, like, there's there's a lot of them, so it's... It, it, people like them because it's a good balance because there's there's millions of different types of buckshot. But that one is good to, like, neutralize, like, a human target pretty much. When I say neutralize, I don't mean to kill. I mean, at short range, it could devastate, but at long range, it's about 1,200 yards. So right. at that range, it's really not going to do nothing except knock you on your feet or, like, kind of rip, rip up the surface of your skin and stuff. I mean, it's, it sucks to get hit by it regardless. But, um, yeah, it's pretty brutal, so... Yeah, and then at close range, you're right. Like, it does do, like, devastating things. And the boys couldn't even be recognized at first. Yeah. So it had been determined through blood flow patterns and, like, the bunching up of the victims' jackets was that they had had a really rough night. Just after law enforcement arrived at the scene, Sandra had woken up from her brief sleep at 9 a.m. She called a friend and asked her to come over. When she got there, she told her the whole story. She had even tried to call Roger's house and ask if he was there, but they told her that he wasn't home. So he had to still be at the reserve. The two decided that they were going to go check if the boys were okay. And to do that, they needed to hitchhike to the Gitche Manitou Mountains. I know everyone hitchhiked in the 1970s, but it is not safe. And you just survived yeah. the worst, the craziest. I can't believe she survived. Oh, yeah. Um, you know what, though? You can't really blame them because hitchhiking for them was kind of normal. It's true. And you know what? Honestly, we kind of do that now. Think about it. We get into strangers' cars with Uber all the no, time. No, it's so tracked. It's not the same thing. No, but we do. The, well, what I'm just trying to say, I, I, I'm making that correlation, though. Like, we do, do still I, do I get, get into strangers' cars. I get so, it. I mean, come on. But there was no, like, GPS location checker and, like, Obviously. rating systems yeah. and background <laughs> checks that could be done with your thumb out. Hey, I don't care. I love Uber. But I'm just <laughs> saying, you know. A woman drove the two girls most of the way, but she needed to head in another direction. 
so she dropped them off by a payphone. Sandra tried to call Roger's house again. This time, his brother picked up. Roger was actually one of 12 children in the Eason family. Wow. Yeah, he had 11. 12 siblings. 11. Yeah. 11. And you know what's... They, the family spent a lot of time up at the Gitche Manitou Mountain Reserve, so it's sad that that's where he met his demise. Sandra just unloaded the entire story on Roger's older brother. Like, in one breath, she told the whole thing. And then finally, at the end, she admitted to him that she had been raped. And he told her to calm down and stay where she was, that he was going to come pick up the two girls. But what Roger's brother didn't tell Sandra was that the sheriff had actually already been to their house and informed the family that his body was found at the Nature Reserve. But he didn't want to be the one to tell Sandra this, but he knew it was of like high importance that he get this girl to the police so she can tell them the full story of what took place. Right, which is smart. Yes. So his brother, is Roger's brother, is going to take Sandra and her friend to the police station. And as soon as they get there, Sandra is arrested read her rights, and fingerprinted. So the whole time Roger's brother is making a huge scene at the police station, like screaming and saying, she's a victim. She's a victim too, so why are you treating her this way? You have to just listen to her story. But the police at the Sioux Falls police station said this is just proper protocol till we find out what happened. Because all we know right now was that she was there. Right. I mean, I get it, but they could have handled it a little bit better. It's not the right way to treat a 13-year-old. No, not at all. So it that was an interesting situation. So eventually, Sandra was brought into an interrogation room where she was asked to write down everything she remembered about that night. And she did. She wrote 10 full pages. She told the police the full account of the events of that night. And they read it. And their response was, there's something missing here. According to Sandra's story, there was absolutely no motive. There's no reason for what happened. So was she not telling them everything? Like, was she trying to protect herself? Were they really yeah. doing something bad? I could see that. But at the same time, I mean, what else would you, what do you else do you want? You know what I mean? If she is a survivor of an event and she's telling you exactly what went down, maybe that is all there is and maybe there doesn't need to be motive i mean if, right you know what i mean sometimes there isn't exactly it just, happens. It just people just do it to do it <laughs> i think because of how brutal the crime was like they needed to feel like there was a motive right for I that to happen so sandra was questioned again and again to see if there were any discrepancies in her story there was none finally sheriff vincent arrived at the police station he was going to be the final person to interview the girl that day. He was going to record the interview, and he had a scribe in the room as well. Sandra recalls immediately being at ease with the sheriff in the room. He seemed to believe her. He told her to tell her story, and he interrupted her every so often only to clarify something or ask a question. Once her story was complete, he apologized to the 13-year-old girl for everything that she had been through. And he told her to get some rest and that her mother was on her way. Sandra hadn't even realized that she had fallen asleep until her mother woke her up. And just as Sandra and her mother were about to leave the police station, Vincent approached them and thanked Sandra's mother. Your daughter gave us a lot of useful information that will help us catch these murderers. Hearing that, 
Sandra fell to the ground, sobbing hysterically. She didn't know the boys were dead until that moment. The whole time in the interrogation room, everyone was using the word homicide. She didn't know what that meant. Oh, wow. So she just found out the boys died. In that died. moment, yeah. And that just shows her innocence, too. Yep. Once she had calmed down, her mother took her to a nearby hospital where she had a physical examination and a rape kit performed. Because the police feared that if her story were true, these men might return to hurt her, she had to spend the night in a juvenile detention center. Obviously, she wasn't in jail, but they just wanted to protect her. Okay. And they were looking for a safe house for the family to temporarily move to. All right. That's a good step. Yeah. And obviously, she wouldn't be returning to school. So she's going to spend her time working with the police while the family was staying in the safe house, which ended up being a trailer in Sioux Falls on a busy street. And there was always a police officer outside. She worked with a sketch artist until every detail was perfect. And she drove around with the sheriff looking for the farm or the abandoned house that she was brought to that night. It seemed at that time that the sheriff was the only one who believed Sandra. Most of the detectives and everyone in her town and the boys' town thought that she was lying. And she had more to do with the crime than she was truly saying. How had she been the one to survive? When she tried to attend Roger's funeral, one of the family members actually screamed at her to get out and said that she had to have been lying about that night. I mean, I I understand grief can play a big role in bad decision-making at times, but I feel like people forget that she's 13 and she is a victim. Uh, So I don't don't agree with that at all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was evidence to back up Sandra's story. The doctors did confirm that she had been raped, and she took two lie detector tests, and she had passed both of them. So finally, after two weeks of riding around Sioux Falls, Sandra was in the car with the sheriff and one of the detectives from Sioux Falls, and she screamed, that's him, that's the boss. Vincent and the Sioux Falls detective confirmed that they both saw that he had a shotgun in the rack behind him in his vehicle. So Vincent let the detective and Sandra out of the truck and he chased after the boss. Sirens blaring. So once the man was pulled over, Vincent told him to get out of the truck and he was arrested without incident. His name was Alan Fryer. He was 29 years old. The sheriff and the detectives interrogated him for three and a half hours. He denied knowing anything about the murders, but he did admit that he was pheasant hunting that day with his two brothers, James R. Fryer, J.R., and his brother, David Fryer, a man with considerable amount of acne scarring on his face. The three men matched the sketches to a T. The men were brought in, and they quickly began pointing fingers at each other. But eventually, it was David who said, they might have run into some kids at the reserve that night. While awaiting trial at the Lyon County Jail, Alan Fryer, also known as the boss, realized that the new locks on the jail had not been welded down. So slowly at night, he was taking the bolts off of the door until finally he was able to open it 
Working on a small budget, the department had no one there watching. And he just walked out of his jail cell. Oh, my God. But once he got out of his jail cell, he went to the floor below him and unlocked his brother JR's cell. And the two men walked right out the front door of the county jail. That's insane. Isn't it? That really is. I mean, that's actually insane that that could happen. Well, it's it. Well, it's 1973, so. Still. <laughs> Still, though. So they went to a nearby... Wait, it gets better. Because this would never happen either. They went to a nearby car dealership and stole a truck that had a full tank of gas and the keys in the ignition. See, I could believe the car thing. Because breaking into a car back in 1970... I don't know why people leave their keys in their ignition. Well, I don't think they did. No, well, but people do that all the time. Well, if they... Yeah, but like back then, you can so easily pick a door, a lock on a door, and hotwire a car instantly with through the wire harness. I know, and you can't do that really anymore. Yeah. So, I can see that. Well, luckily for law enforcement, the brothers were not too bright. They were arrested in Wyoming for hitting a pedestrian <laughs> about a week later. So, they had really only been free for a week. Um, they were arrested, recaptured, and Sheriff Vincent went out to retrieve them. But uh, the pedestrian was okay, by the way. But Sandra must have been terrified in that week that they were free. Could you imagine? Yeah. Because all you're thinking is they're coming to get me. That's true, actually. Another yeah. plot for a horror movie. And he even said, I'll, I'll, I'm only going to be in there shortly and I'm going to get out and I'll come get you. Right. And she's thinking, yeah. oh my God, it's true. It's He's going to get me. Yeah. This poor girl. Yep. So each brother had a trial. And Sandra testified at each one. I mean, this girl was so courageous at 13 years old. And over a year, she had spent a lot of time being re-victimized on the stand by defense attorneys and having to tell room full of strangers the details of the worst night of her life. All brothers were given life without the possibility of parole. They were all sentenced to a maximum security prison in Fort Madison, Iowa. The motive for the crimes was never established, but I think it was obvious that the men were just looking for trouble. Now, it could be possible that they did go out there to go pheasant hunting because you do use like a size four buckshot to go pheasant hunting. But I just think that they had other motives in mind, especially because they were so upset that Dana wasn't a girl and they didn't shoot the, who they thought were the girls. But yeah, I but I also think that maybe the um, the plan wasn't something that was collectively thought of, and but then it kind of they it, they by one or two of them maybe pushing forward on that plan to do these things to these kids. Maybe the yeah. the other one decided to join in or had no choice or you know what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, no, I agree with like you. Like maybe it was one, and then they realized that they can't stop their brother from, uh, you know carrying out what he wanted and then they just well it's that's actually really curious because it seemed like the one leading the charge the whole time was the boss right right and the two brothers kept looking to him but he was the one who screwed up and let sandra go isn't that very weird and then he's Uh, not the one who raped her that was jr right and i think that that weird dynamic right but i think that by JR raping her, he got even more 
I don't want to say, I don't want to say like scared, but because I mean, you already killed like a couple of kids already, but like, I don't know, maybe it changed some, something changed that right there changed something with him in that moment to, to make him bring her home. Right. I don't know exactly what it would be. Mm-hmm. Maybe the fact that she was 13 and rape. I don't even know, but right. it, something changed at that moment when he did that. Yeah. Cause I mean, like usually I would have like but, some sort of, but like, I feel like that was the whole point for stopping the teenagers because my thought process would be that a lot of teenagers partied up there and it seemed like they were trying to break up a party, but they were staying in the woods until they, the teenagers came to them and they were picking them off one by one. So I think they were trying to get access to a bigger party or where there were more girls. I think that was, I think that was what they were trying to do. Why else were they so concerned about the amount of girls? Did you also have to remember that Jr. was supposed to kill her, and, and he sh- and he didn't. No, the boss was. I'm sorry, to kill her. right? And he didn't. Yeah, but yeah, it doesn't make any sense why like, this. They no did matter this. who is doing what, it doesn't make any sense, right? And that's why I, that's why I made the con- like I tried to make a connection with the whole. Well, there could, I don't know why no one believes this this girl because there doesn't need to be. Um, a motive. Well, well maybe for this. when they found out there was only one girl and only one brother would be able to have her, they decided not to. But the, but if you think to about it too, about they it. thought it, there was two girls. Right. It's just so weird. It's very strange. All right. So, Sandra is going to live with survivor's guilt and PTSD for most of her life. She was ostracized by those who went to school with her. And no one's parents would allow their child to be friends or date the Gitchy girl, as she became known. Now, that's actually the title of the book that the Hammonds wrote. But I didn't want to say it at the top of the show because then you would obviously know who survived the attacks that night. But the book Gitchy Girl is so good. And if you're interested in the case, you should definitely read it. They actually just released another book this past year. That covers the criminal investigation aspect of the case more so. Like the first book is the survivor's account and the second one is the investigator's account. And they're both incredible. So eventually Sandra moved further away with her younger, the youngest of her older brothers and his wife. And she got married. But she always thought of Roger and those boys and why. She wanted to know why it happened and why she was let go. After years of many forms of therapy, she felt animal therapy worked the best. She wanted to put an end to the chapter in her life that included Gitchy Manitou. She put in a request to meet with the three brothers 40 years after the crime took place in 2013. Only the boss agreed to meet with her. Isn't this crazy? So crazy. He, like many in his situation, denied shooting anybody. And Sandra knew he was lying because she had seen him shoot Roger twice. And she knew that for sure. So she obviously wasn't going to get what she wanted from that aspect. So she decided to change the subject and kind of get what she came there for. And she just asked it. She said, why didn't you kill me? And he said, you were the same age as my stepdaughter at the time. So when she revealed to him she was a virgin and she was 13, that's when he was... He decided to let her go. All right, so that would explain to what I thought it was. It had to yeah, be, it was. It had to you be. You were really something. close. Something changed in that moment, so. right? And I think that's why he drove around with her for so long, is because I mean, he really knew that she was just this young girl, and he couldn't kill her. He couldn't do it because he was 
um, thinking of his stepdaughter. Well, and you know, it's so bizarre, right? His character right now, right? He committed murder. He did horrible acts. But, and I'm not trying to justify anything. I'm just saying, even with all the all that, yeah, he still had some sort of weird remorse and decided not to perform another bad act. It's it's yeah. weird how people are wired like that, where they can commit all these atrocities, but yet there's a limit and there's a line drawn for them. Yeah, I think he compartmentalized his crimes here, where he felt justified in killing the boys, but couldn't bring himself right. to kill the girl. It's interesting. I find it that is. the most interesting out Definitely. of all. Yeah. Well, after she got an answer, right, she actually got what she was looking for. Sandra said she felt as if a thousand pounds lifted from her shoulders. She had saved herself by talking, and she had survived her difficult life, all the phases of it. And now she knew she needed to get over the events that took place in her past. So to do this, she looked to her ancestors, the Lakota Native Americans. She chose to perform one of the ceremonies at the reserve called the Wiping of Tears Ceremony. This is supposed to cleanse an area and a person of spiritual negativity. She held the ceremony at the site of the attacks, and she likes to think that Roger, Mike, Stu, and Dana were all with her that day. I mean, that's really, you know, I give her a lot of credit for confronting, you know, her, her attacker past and her past. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very courageous. Extremely courageous. And that, it's like you couldn't even make up a story like that or an ending like that or a final girl like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's that's what I'm thinking about in my head right now is the fact that even though the best ending would have been for no one to die a brutal death, but I guess that's the silver lining out of all of this, I guess, is that she survived and she was able to confront everything and that she, you know, moved on with her life. And move forward. Yeah. And not everyone can do that. Yeah, it so. was hard for her at first. You know, she spent a lot of time with Roger's family and then she did, she did spend a good amount of time, like, drinking and partying, trying to forget things. But then to move forward with your life and do great things with your life, it's almost like that's your, you're dedicating your life to what those four boys would have been. Yep. You know? I agree. And that's what she did, which is so inspiring. And Absolutely. if you want to hear more about this, really, you got to read those, the books by the Hammonds. They're so good. And I'll leave the um, the book titles in the show notes so you guys can see them. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, our first of 2020. We wanted to bring you a crazy one to get this year started right. And again, if you liked if you like us or you liked the episode, please leave a review on any of the podcast listening platforms. And you could um, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right, guys. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>